Back after a break with Securiosity, but first, DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, is the nation's largest cybersecurity festival. This citywide festival drives thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to Washington, D.C. for one week to exchange best practices, collaborate, and find ways to achieve common goals. Community events are at the heart and soul of D.C. Cyber Week, and this is your chance to meet top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. All right, let's go. Welcome to Curiosity for July 12th. I'm Jen O'Daniel. And I'm Greg Otto, and we're here to bring you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week, the cybersecurity world turned on a popular video conferencing app, more home security services are being attacked, and a ton of money is being thrown at GDPR compliance help. In our interview, we talk with J.P. Keating from Zimperium. Zimperium is a company focused on mobile security, and we talk to J.P. around the security baked into mobile banking apps. But first, let's get to the week that was. It has been a terrible week for the people behind video conferencing app Zoom. A security flaw revealed Monday found a vulnerability in Zoom for Macs that allow users to turn on a user's video camera without their, and I'm going to say that all again. It has been a terrible week for the people behind video conferencing app Zoom. A security flaw revealed Monday found a vulnerability in Zoom for Macs that could allow a hacker to turn on a camera's video without their authorization or disrupt their computer via a denial of service attack. After initially downplaying the issue, Zoom issued a patch Tuesday that let users remove a local host web server from their computers that would have installed the app. A company spokesperson wouldn't disclose the number of Zoom users, but said the vulnerability affects a significant portion of its customer base. If that wasn't enough, on Wednesday, Apple made news by going above and beyond releasing an update that removed a vulnerability component in Zoom. Greg, this is one of the people got worked up on, yeah? Well, they got worked up for a good reason, because when this was initially found and disclosed, Zoom CISO wrote a blog entry that basically said, uh, look, you'd have to be pretty dumb to have this be an issue, and you know, it, it's just not something that we're that concerned about. We'll issue your patch, but I mean, come on, everybody, like, l- let's be real. And the security community was like, oh, th- th- this was the wrong response. This is not the way oh, that you boy. do this at all. And then when, you know, they backtracked and finally put the patch out and said, we'll take care of it. What uh, was interesting was Apple then went above and beyond and just took out this hidden server that could have been exploited altogether. And the thing that was interesting about it is Apple said that no no action needed to be taken by the user. It was done automatically um, and it would update. There's no need to download any patch or update any software or anything like that, which is nuts if you think about it, that Apple can reach out into millions of operating systems that are using this product and just throw in some code and the, the problem's gone. I mean, if there are some people that are arguing that it it runs up against the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act by doing that, and I have to say I agree because if that was just a normal person that was like, oh, I'm going to break in all of these systems and and fix all of that, <laughs> and that's and that's fine. That that that's hacking. That's what hacking is. But right. if Apple does it, it's okay. Like it, this is such a wild story in how fast everything happened, came out, the reaction to oh to blaming the users and then Apple just going, oh, wait a minute, let's go into the the universal settings for our operating system. Oh, okay, done. And nobody has to do anything. (laughs) What just happened? I mean, but don't you feel a little bit more secure, right? Apple has can just break in and and fix things for you? No, I I don't. (laughs) I don't. Absolutely not. Uh, I don't. Uh, Not at all. But just think of all of the people that have this, app on their Macs and just for whatever reason are um, not smart enough or too lazy or aren't watching the news or just don't care um, that are vulnerable to um, this threat. Well, it's funny that you say that because uh, the parent company of CyberScoop, Scoop News Group, just got a Zoom account for their new office. And this was literally playing out as I'm getting like sign up notices for Zoom accounts. So I was like, oh, great. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. Um, uh, the business side uh, is 
is paying attention to CyberScoop all the time and uh, is, you know, buying products based off of, no, that's not happening at but all. But look, and then but, you have... But no, but that's your yeah. point. That, that, that is your point. That and then you have, yeah, you have users like me that, um, you know, for a living, listen to startup pitches and they range on that kind of software all the time. All kinds, I probably have 20 <clears throat> apps on my iPad that, that range um, in that type of video service. And I mean, I'm sure couldn't list those for you. So Zoom is one that is, is really well known, but I've got others on there that, you know, are, are a lot less known. And if a patch got released or was a vulnerability, I might not even realize it's on my iPad. Right. So it's, I think it's important that, you know, Apple made that decision to reach down and fix it sort of for everybody, even though that is a little bit scary. Um, but bad PR move for the CEO of Zoom. Uh, yeah, not, <laughs> not great. So... To another story about uh, enterprises reaching out and and taking advantage of hacking individuals, a federal judge has ruled that a former managing director of Brevet Capital Management, an asset firm that oversees billions of investment dollars, can move forward with a proposed lawsuit alleging that the company hacked into his personal accounts. U.S. District Judge William H. Pauley on Tuesday denied a request from Brevet Capital to reconsider a previous court decision not to dismiss the case. Now, the case centers around uh, something that came online in May that another judge ruled that Paul Icavacci could move forward with claims that Brevet had violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and other laws by accessing accounts and hard drives to read his personal email and other sensitive information, and Brevet has denied any wrongdoing. Gen companies hacking their own employees before they're out the door. That's that's a new one for me. Yeah, but are you really surprised? I mean, you're talking about somebody that is, you know, overseeing um, investments and in a, in a lot of money, um, potentially making... Personal email, though. Yeah. Personal email well, is where I draw the line. That's where I draw the line. If, if I have, like, for instance, I have my own personal email and I have my own email at cyberscoop.com. Cyberscoop.com, the company runs runs that no, inbox. But and absolutely. Can pull that. But are you are you I mean we're sitting here in Cyberscoop's offices and you're using their Wi Fi. Did you open up your personal email? Yes. Have my personal email open all the time. Yeah. I kind of feel like you're on the company Wi Fi and it's now your property of your company. I really hope that that's not the legal ramifications. I don't you know, that. I don't think that's the legal ramifications at all, but I think you kinda of have to assume that's what's going on. I mean, I guess I would assume that if I'm, you know, doing anything on my personal email and I'm opening up at work, that probably work can see it. Somewhere in the IT could at that point be looking. Yes. There, there, and I don't so know if this is your that. personal device or if this is a work device. No, 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 no. This is, so, yeah, this is all work de- work uh, devices. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I uh, well, m- the phone that I use for work is a personal device, but the, the laptops that I use are, are company property. But, um, no, you, you bring up a really good point in that what, where are the legal lines? But I do think the legal lines there are that even if you're accessing a personal email and it's on a work environment, that doesn't give an employer a right to pry into that account. I can look up my bank account on a, a, a corporate network as well just to check some funds there. That has nothing to do with the line of business. That's just... A personal thing should they be able to pry into that as well i mean that's it says uh, you know other sensitive information like that's have you ever read the terms and conditions signing up for um using wi-fi at someone else's offices no have you ever read it no. so um, you, has anybody ever read terms and conditions outside so of I the, actually, the lawyers so, so i actually read one um i was somewhere and i wasn't exactly comfortable with the, with the company's office that i was in Okay. But I needed to get on their Wi-Fi. I didn't have my Wi-Fi with me, and I couldn't um, tether with my phone. And I um, just sort of glanced through it. And <laughs> and their policy was something like anything that is accessed on our Wi-Fi network becomes property of ours if we so choose to. Um, so, you know, that was something I didn't, you know, you wouldn't want to open up anything. I really wonder if they have the legal will... recourse to do that. I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. That would be interesting to talk to uh, a lawyer about that. But it sounds like something that is put in there for just their own legal cover. Like, I can't oh, sure imagine, I can't imagine what would happen if that was ever challenged. Like, it, it does not strike me that that would be legally feasible. But then again, I, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so maybe the, that is the way that the law covers that. But 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I continue not to be excited that that my work can wipe my personal devices at any time if I like lose my phone because I have their email on my phone. Um, there's a you know an app I had to download and they can just wipe my device at any given time without any warning. You right. Know, I, so I guess yeah. The, well, the, I guess it would be to be proactive if you're going to leave a company before you like turn anything in. Wipe all your the passwords, clean all the Wi-Fi, like just basically reset your machines or your devices, and maybe they won't end in lawsuits. <laughs> That's got to be a violation of some sort, too. <laughs> so when U.S. Cyber Command warned last week that a hacking group is using a Microsoft Outlook vulnerability previously leveraged by an RAN-linked malware campaign, it signaled just how much the military knows about those operations. But the alert was significant in other ways. Behind the scenes, detailed uncovered by CyberScoop, show that it is an example of how the U.S. government has built up its use of the information sharing platform virus total, so the private sector gets more information sooner. By going public about the malicious files, Cyber Command also appears to have revealed new information about how Iran-link actors leveraged another malware family known as Shamoon. Greg, what else can you share? So this looks to be an instance of the government actually sharing information in a cognizant and positive way. You sound surprised. I am very surprised because for as long as I've been reporting on this, uh, you know, from the government side, the story has been the government has no good way to share information. And even if they did have a good way, there's always turf battles. There's always people that aren't sharing the right information. DHS, FBI, the intelligence community, they just don't do a good job with it. And this story shows otherwise. Uh, if you read the story, uh, so there was the the virus total announcement from Cyber Command. I believe it was July 2nd. Um, but behind the scenes, there was a lot of work that went up into the rollout of of that. And what I mean by that, and it's not just from a PR perspective, it's aligning what the alert was going to do and how it was going to be received by uh, the, the private sector or nonprofits. Because after uh, the, uh, the, the virus total announcement went out, DHS also followed up with its own TLP Amber report. Okay. Which gets kicked down to the private sector. Uh, it's a different information sharing apparatus, but the the Cyber Command virus total upload and the TLP Amber were coordinated in a way that they were going to be received at the same time, which is not something that you see a lot, especially with, with Cyber Command. The, this this Cyber Command virus total thing is something that has been sort of new. I mean, this was the first non-Russian linked piece of malware that Cyber Command has put out there. Oh. Um, so for uh, Cyber Command and DHS to be really um, on board, uh, like and and working cohesively to push that out, um, it's something that we we haven't seen, we haven't ever seen. And uh, we talked to uh, somebody from the Cyber Threat Alliance, which uh, has some ex uh, government people in it, but they work with all of the top level private uh, cybersecurity companies that we've all heard of to push out their own alerts. Okay, and they were actually. Uh, given a tip that like this was coming, but they were they were held to an embargo in the same way that like the press is held to an sure. embargo on this stuff. And once uh, the government put it out forth, uh, then the the CTA and I'm sure there were others that put out their own information around it too. So it was like this cascading organized uh, effort to get this information out there about this uh, Iranian threat. And I can't remember ever seeing the government be uh, on the same page and organized and and the leader in getting that information out to the world that, hey, this is what we're seeing from, you know, this APT. That doesn't happen. Usually it's the other way around, that the private sector is putting out research and the government, you know, is being reactive and, and figuring out what it is that they're going to do. It seems to be the other way around for once. So we're doing something right now. Yes. I mean, that, that the, the government did something right. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about how the, the, the government tends not to get this stuff right at all. And this was quite the opposite. So, it, hey, it deserves airtime more uh, more so, I, I believe, than any of the other times where they've gotten it wrong. Like, well, it's, it's, not, it's not always a disaster. That's so. exciting. So, Jen, brace yourself for synthetic identity theft. 
Unlike traditional identity fraud where thieves steal a person's name, social security number, and open lines of credit, this scam involves criminals combining a fake name and other fictional personal data such as a date of birth with a true social security number. It's the fastest growing type of financial crime in the U.S. thanks mostly to a huge uptick of personal information exposed in data breaches and all of this information and the threat was put together in a new white paper that came out this week from the U.S. Federal Reserve. Jen, had you ever heard of anything like this before uh, Before the Fed put out this paper this week? No, I haven't. And how do, you, how do you get away with opening up like a credit card or whatever with a fake name tied to the wrong social security number? Well, all they need is one piece of data for it to be right, and it's the, the validating data. So if you have a social security number, I, I, I can't express how easy it is to get this fake information because I'll be honest with you if there's like a website that I want to sign up for that I don't want to give them their personal my personal information because I don't want them to give it to you know advertising companies or use it for their own I'll just make something up and normally these are like smaller like if I want to get around like a paywall uh, or if I want to just sign up, I don't know, for some shopping account. Like, I know, I, I think um, one thing that I use, like, there's a website where you can just, t- literally, if you Google fake data generator, all of this stuff comes up. Okay. And I've punched into some of these shopping sites that I'm a woman that owns a food service business in yeah. Louisiana. I mean, I never but, give my actual but, birth date. Right. So, but think about it. So all of that information, if you have one piece of it, it it's another level of obfuscation where, okay, you know, you have all of this automated fraud detection and if they're only looking at a social security number and I feed it a social security number that, that gets that validation, who cares what the other information is? Like, and it can't be traced back to the person who owns that social security number who's actually behind that information and you can't find the person abusing that information so i i am not surprised that this is something that is on the rise and i think it's it's real going to be really really interesting to try to defend against because if you're obfuscating all of this how do you figure out who the criminal is see that's really interesting that reminds me i was doing diligence of um basically an insurance company or insurance aggregating company and I was talking to um, a guy that's an expert in, in car insurance. And he was telling me that at some point, um, the DMV in Virginia um, was hacked um, in a way that they they have decided that they keep um, your driver's license number separate from your driving record. Okay. And so the names don't match up. And so you so you just that one piece of data, you can never, like, in their system, you can never easily, like, decide Greg okay. Otto is this number. Okay. And so um, when you go to buy car insurance, if you've got like, I don't know, like four DUIs or like a really bad driving record, um, you can just easily change your driver's license number that you submit, just change it off by a couple of things and you would get a different um, insurance quote. And there's no way to go back and prove that that wasn't actually your insurance. And I thought, what? Yeah, so, th- <laughs> so no, it kind that's of reminds exactly me of that. what I'm just talking about. Just change a piece about. of data, right. something adds up right. so it works. The- Data manipulation, I think, is something that you're going to see more and more of in the future because it's just, once it starts to click on the bad guy side that, oh, wait, look how easy this is. Then you have that that, that criminal imagination to go out there and figure out ways to manipulate it. So be on the lookout for this type of stuff and all, all the more reason that you should have some kind of credit monitoring or credit freeze or or something attached to uh, your social security number when it comes to your lines of credit. Yeah. So let's move on to um, scarier news. So a flaw in the firmware of anesthesia and respiratory devices made by GE could allow a hacker to change the composition of gases dispensed by the equipment, putting patients at risk, researchers warned on Tuesday. The vulnerability discovered by CyberMDX comes with a caveat, a hacker would need access to a hospital network and for the target machines to be connected to a terminal server. Still, the discovery is a reminder of how the most sensitive of healthcare equipment is well within the reach of gear that could be hacked. Greg, um, can you think of a reason why one of these machines would need to connect to the internet? I, I mean, I'm not a hospital administrator, but I'm trying to think of why an anesthesia machine would need to be connected to a hospital network like I can think of it from the standpoint 
Yeah, from, from firmware updates, but it doesn't need to be like continuously connected. Like if you have to plug it in to get updates or whatever, that's fine. Or, or if for whatever reason you need to um, have it plug into a network where a signal transfers back to a nursing station. But to me, that doesn't make sense because it's an anesthesia machine. Like these things aren't on a person continuously like for hours. Like you administer the anesthesia take it off and that's that. Or maybe my, uh, maybe I'm wrong in, in how I understand them to work. But when well, an anesthesia is yeah. administered, if it's like, uh, you know, um, something that is breathed in, that's temporary. So why does that machine need to be connected to a hospital network in order for it to perform something that is essentially at most a 20 minute uh, procedure? I, I, I yeah, just don't get it. Yeah, but we're in, a, we're in a time of life where everything's connected to the internet. I just got a new appliances a couple weeks ago. And um, my oven, my dishwasher, my microwave, my refrigerator, and my washer and dryer all connect to my Wi-Fi. And the guy who came and installed was like, um, I need your Wi-Fi password. <laughs> I go, why? Yeah. And he's like, well, you're going to want to control your appliances. And I'm like, why in the world would I ever need to control my oven or my dishwasher, for that matter, with my phone. It's funny you say that. I'm going to jump into our next story, and we'll get to that point, because that is something that I definitely want to talk about. Homeowners trying to protect their property with surveillance cameras <laughs> and smart locks may have actually made their households more vulnerable, according to security flaws unveiled by separate teams of researchers last week. The Netgear Arlo system, which the company says streams more than 100 million videos every day, and certain types of the Zapato smart hubs which can lock and unlock doors, are affected by security flaws detailed in unrelated announcements from Tenable and researchers Chase Dardeman and Jason Wheeler, respectively. Patches are available for both vulnerabilities, and hackers would need physical access in both cases to carry out attacks. So, but Jen, do you feel any better or worse about the, the, the cameras and the devices that you use in your home? I guess I'm at a point where I don't care. You know, um, you know I, have, I have security cameras. I have an electronic lock. Um, I have all that stuff. Um, I have first generation of some of that stuff. I've re- when it just comes to a third generation, I replace things. Like I replace my first generation Nest with the third generation Nest, imagining it's more secure. Um, but given that my oven has to have an oven lock, so when it's not being used, like I literally have to lock it so some random person can't access my Wi-Fi and like turn my oven on. Yeah. Like you have to kind of wonder about, yeah, this like isn't that about type child stuff, safety anymore, this is about... It, yeah, it's crazy in that. So we were talking. I, I'm I'm moving into a new house in a month. Yeah, I'm looking at all of this stuff. Looked at Arlo's. Looked at Ring. Looked at uh, a, a bunch of other cheaper options and all of it. I, I they've been in my website. They've been in TechCrunch. They've been yep. in in The Verge or Gizmodo or what have you. All of them. All of them have these security flaws. So it's like if you're looking for something that's totally secure, you're you're just not going to find it. And it's like what I, I'm so I'm so exhausted trying to find something that I can uh, you know am, am comfortable with the amount of risk that I'm bringing in. And it's funny that you say you just don't care because I was talking to somebody that works for uh, a, a very popular cybersecurity startup. Uh, and, and it was at uh, an event we were having drinks and he showed me that uh, or he checked in on his dog in, in his house and this is a very smart very uh, well-to-do cybersecurity expert and I couldn't believe that he even had the camera I was like don't you aren't you worried about being hacked and he was like no he was like yeah I understand the possibilities there I don't care I just don't care those is convenient because any threat can't get me past the convenience of checking on my dog when I'm 2,500 miles away. And that's from, exactly why I have security dog. cameras, because I want to be able to check up on my dog. And, um, you know, it's interesting, actually, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, actually right after my appliances got installed, um, all my lights are connected to, like, a Wemo. Okay. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting on the sofa, and I'm watching something random on TV and doing work email, and um, all of a sudden the light above me, like, turns on and off and on and off. And then another light starts going. And I'm like... Somebody messing with you. Somebody's messing with my lights. And somebody was messing with my lights. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, it's sort of interesting. And you have to take that risk. I've um, I've been home in bed before and, and seen my Nest camera go on. And so you just sort of have to, like, take, like, if you have this stuff, 
you know, probably somebody sitting on the other side and you have to either be like, I'm okay with that or, um, you know, not have that stuff. Yeah, it's... And I've, I've hit that I'm okay with it. Um, so please don't hack my cameras. <laughs> but, you know, you take that risk. Yeah, and uh, I'm just really surprised. Uh, I'm surprised, and yet I'm not at the people. At people just going, you know, I I just don't care. Like it's this is too convenient for me not to well not and, to pass up. And you know, and I'm not. I, I won't call myself a cybersecurity expert, but I'm certainly informed. And your and your other guys is cybersecurity expert, and you know, we both take that standpoint of. It yeah, when the happens. experts are, when some of the experts are like, you know what, I just, this is just even too convenient for so, me. So, I mean, figure so imagine out. like all the consumers out there that are buying the stuff that really. Oh, they have um, no idea. They have no they have idea. A- absolutely no idea. Yeah. They don't care. They absolutely, just make sure that it works. Right. right. So, so we, we live in interesting times. So, are you getting security cameras? Uh, I, as a matter of fact, believe that I am going to get these Arlo uh, security cameras. Because, nice. Well, because, uh, listen, if. Going back to some of these that were found, uh, what was it? Hackers need physical access in both cases to carry out attacks. If you're going to attack my cameras and need physical access, this means you have broken into my house. And then we, well, then I can just take matters into my own hands, whether that's calling the police or, you know, these things have cloud video upload. So if you're trying to hack my camera, that while, you know, while the camera's in operation, I'm going to have that dumped into a cloud. I'll just go... Give that to police and go. Please go, like go get that dude. So I, I'm over that. I'm okay or with you that. Just become a gun owner. There's no. There's I. I. I, I don't <laughs> think I'm gonna. That that's that's not my style. Um, but no, the the Arlo over something like the Ring with the doorbells, where there was yeah. that story where that Amazon employees are looking into Ring doorbells without the consumer knowing. That to me is like, oh, okay, I, I don't need that. Uh, I'm all right. I pass on on the the smart doorbell. I'll I'll rather go with the system that just has the flaws that can only be exploited if hackers or, or anybody needs the physical access to. So the wait, system. are you not a fan of? So you don't, you're not going to get the ring doorbell, but are you not a fan of the idea of um, you know somebody being able to ring your doorbell and you unlocking your door and letting them put your Amazon packages in? No. Um, I, I, I don't want see that to me. I don't want those people in my house. Like, and, and it's not. I, I just don't want that risk uh, of the delivery person. Like putting the trust in the delivery person for me. I've seen all of these stories. I'm a journalist. I see you know the darker side of the world a lot more than than the rest of the population and I, I just don't trust it. That's why all these stories about Amazon that say, oh, we'll drop it off in your car or let us into your garage. I'm like, no. Oh like, man, I let my UPS guy no, all the time. No, no, pass. Just leave it on the doorstep. <laughs> I will take, or, or leave it on my back porch. I'll I'll take uh, a, a roll of the dice with, with anything. Because if it was like, I'm not going to leave like a, a maybe like a $150 purchase and above just on my stoop. Like 95% of my Amazon packages are like diapers or like gum or or stuff that it's just, I don't have the time to get to Target. You get gum delivered by Amazon? Well, I mean, just I'm just <laughs> random orders that I've had. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what was, like actually, it's funny, the, the last thing I actually bought a new doorbell for my new house is getting shipped to the house that okay. I'm in now, but it's only like 18 bucks. If it was, you know, one of these ring doorbells or something like that, I would just probably send it to an Amazon locker because I trust them. That's locked away and I have the code and that's that. I don't worry about them leaving it on my front stoop and turning around. I got to tell you, I, the, I have a, the I had a ring. I now would nest like that is um, just been invaluable um, to me over the years to have to be able to see sort of who's at the door and and just not make the decision not to answer it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so that's the thing with the Arlo system too. The Arlo has motion sensors where I can get an alert if somebody's at my front yeah. door at a weird time. Uh, I mean, I, I'm you know during the day working. If I get an alert at I don't know 11:30 when I know nobody's home. My, my, my kids are out at school or at daycare or whatever, and I know I'm not expecting anything and I get an alert, I'll look in on it. 
If, sure. Yeah. If it's just a bird, I mean, I'll, I'll ignore it. Or if, yeah, I mean, even with the Arlo, if I get, if my doorbell even rings and I'm home, I can punch up my Arlo and see who's at my door and just ignore them anyway. Got like it. That's, yeah, okay. Like, I, I've worked around the, the, just having the video in the doorbell because the, that, that whole story with the ring and, and Amazon employees just popping it open for fun, that's, that that's too much for me. I would much rather deal with some type of flaw where a person actually needs physical access to it because okay. they're probably yeah, not yeah, yeah. going to get that physical access. Got it. So when Georgia's judicial system became the latest government victim of a ransomware attack, the state spokesperson did not know what kind of malware was used. But a source with knowledge of the incident said that the courts appear to have hit by Rai Uk, the same hacking tool responsible for several attacks last month across a series of small cities in Florida, including two that paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to hackers to restore the systems. The Ryuk malware is often packaged with two other viruses, Emotet, a Trojan horse virus delivered through a phishing email containing an attachment designed to look like a Microsoft Word file, and TrickBot, which steals sensitive information from an infected computer and scans the networks it's connected to. The multi-pronged attack has led to the Emotet, TrickBot, Ryo combination sometimes being referred to as a triple threat. Greg, this triple threat seems to like it would be tough to stop for any city. Yeah, um, it, it, we've seen it uh, wreak havoc uh, across the country. Um, it's really, really interesting to see that different, the different malware, like each of these malware families, Emotet, Ryuk, TrickBot, are powerful in their own right, and we've seen them attached to crimes across the world, but having them be combined and then thrown out there on the cities, it, it really shows how much needs to happen inside cities to protect their systems. Like, what happened up in Baltimore? Th- this is not what happened up in Baltimore. At least I don't think so, um, with sources that I was talking to. Even if this was, I mean, it's pretty sophisticated malware to the point where you would really have to have your systems and your networks guarded really, really well. Like, it it takes a lot of effort there, and we know that that effort hasn't been around. But even if you had those efforts in place to use this triple threat, you were still going to get hit. So it's, it's just a tough, tough thing to deal with. And what's interesting also in this whole... Uh, cities being hit with ransomware narrative that's been going on. I think the U.S. Conference of Mayors was this week, and Baltimore's mayor has signed some proclamation or or, or got the group to make some proclamation that they weren't going to pay ransoms anymore, which I, I like that they've at least recognized that this is ultimately what hackers want. But at the same time, I think cities aren't going to listen to this at all. I mean, there's this proclamation. It's great. It's just a proclamation. If you have a city that you need to run and you have cyber insurance, why are you paying into that cyber insurance so you can rattle off these payments? So, so how many cities have been hit by a triple threat? Do we know? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to look up to see if that information is in this. Uh, great story by State Scoop that was released earlier this week. But um, I mean, the Florida ones, I believe that that was definitely the culprit. And yeah, look, this is advanced. You're not going to find the greatest cybersecurity minds working IT for small cities in Florida. So that's why your city council is going to turn around and go, oh, we have an insurance policy. Just pay it and turn the computers back on, please. <laughs> so I wonder, um, I wonder what companies we're going to spin up that are going to become experts in protecting cities from triple threats. It's funny that you say that because I am working on some stories to become sort of a TBD. I'm teasing this out a little bit. Some companies that have started to do this, but not in the way that you think. There are companies out there that are now just negotiating with the hackers more than doing the protection part of it. So TBD, um, some really interesting conversations that I've been having. And uh, yeah, the, the, the notion that you should not pay the ransom is beginning to fly out the window. 
I mean, why wouldn't he pay the ransom, especially if it's covered by insurance? Right. So. Okay. To the business side of things, and before we get into some venture uh, money that uh, came out this week, some fines, some GDPR fines, and it actually works very well with uh, the business side of things. There were two GDPR fines announced this week. Uh, The UK Information Commissioner's Office proposed a $123.7 million fine. It actually works out to about 99 million pounds against Marriott under the GDPR for the data breach that compromised roughly 339 million guest records. That was the one that started on Starwood Hotel Systems in 2014 and managed to move in the full Marriott systems once Marriott acquired Starwood in 2016. Was that the one with passports? Oh, yeah. Okay. That was that one. And then also uh, the same office said we'll issue a fine of 183.39 pounds, which works out to about $229.2 million for British Airways for security weaknesses that made it possible for hackers to steal information about roughly 500,000 customers. Uh, The security weaknesses were tied, I believe this is what was tied to Magecart, and the proposed fine would constitute 1.5% of British Airways total revenue. Um, the violations were not really strung out. All the ICO said was that poor security arrangements made the breach possible. So hand over that money. So we're starting to see these fines uh, drop Love it. Uh, a little bit. Um, but are they enough? Think they're enough? I mean, 1.5% of British Airways 2017 revenue. $229 million. I don't know what British Airways market cap is. So, I don't either. And uh, I look, I mean, it seems like a big number to me, and it seems like it would probably hurt. Um, but I I mean, I think it. It's it definitely needs to hurt. more than the six figures that they were doing beforehand, where it was like, oh, right. um, it, we'll, we'll find you the highest that we can find you, $675,000. And right. it's like, okay, we'll. we'll I, I guess we have to shut down the the retreat for next month, or, or you know, right. something like that. Right. There goes that. our coffee budget. Yeah. Or, you know, right. Yeah. Um, so. No, uh, I would not be surprised if we start to see more of these fines. And I know that the UK ICO is looking into Google as well. So we may see an even bigger fine soon. I wonder if this will lead though to just like security breach cover ups, where you know you just don't learn that your data has been hacked. Well, I, mm, I I think that that happens now, but I I don't think companies run the want to run the risk because God forbid that does come out and then you are up against the GDPR and the 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 powers that be will will go to the highest extent possible. Yeah. If you, if you yeah, went yeah. to hide it, because that was that was generally what a big part of the law was about. Like, just don't hide it. Like it's not the like you can be breached under the GDPR. The GDPR doesn't say you can't be breached. It says you need to follow the right timeline for disclosure. Right. Yep. And then like you'll be fine. You'll be. Uh, I mean, there are other if you're negligent or whatever, we can talk about that al- along the side. But we recognize that breaches are going to happen, but you can't sit on it. Remember, there's that 72 hour mm-hmm. window. So yep. I think that is a really really big. Uh, uh, Part of it, and uh, it's funny that you uh, bring that up in the way companies are handling it because there's a big company that made a ton of money this week um, with helping companies figure out how to handle it. Uh, but first, TrapX Security said Monday it raised 18 million as part of a Series C funding round, bringing its total funding up to 37 million. The San Mateo-based company provides deception technology that promises to more quickly identify hackers and inside threats at larger enterprises. The funding round was led by a ton of firms, BRM, Opus Capital, Intel Capital, Liberty Technology Venture Capital, and Strategic Cyber Ventures. Then also, uh, last week, our last podcast, you heard from Menlo Securities mm-hmm. CTO, and they announced a nice round of funding this week. Uh, announced $75 million in Series D funding led by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, along with existing investors like General Catalyst, Sutter Hills, Osage University, American Express, HBSC, everybody's in on this one. Um, Again, they do uh, browser isolation technology, which is basically your browser connects to uh, a virtual computer and it never touches endpoints. Uh, It would definitely 
say if you did not listen to uh, our interview with the CTO last time, go back and listen to some really interesting technology there. And the big winner this week, OneTrust, which builds tools to help companies navigate data protection and privacy policies like GDPR, has raised a 200 million Series A round led by Insight that values the company at $1.3 billion. Have you ever heard of a Series A round that high? I mean, that's huge. And, and usually when you see it, and you see it maybe at half that, um, it's guys that have exited a couple other things and they've been backed by that venture firm before. Right. And I was just looking at the LinkedIn profiles of, of the of the management team on, on this company. And, you know, that's definitely not their case, right? This is just based on they are just really good at this and have really become a standout in this space. GDPR compliance scares the hell yeah. out of companies. And this is really, really interesting in just the amount of money that's being dumped into this. It's Companies are scared. They're scared by the GDPR. Yeah. And it's funny. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a story. I, I saw somebody on Twitter tweet out this website called, I think it's deceit.me, like DC, D-E-S-E-A-T dot me. Uh, but basically what it is, is it's an automated form to allow you to request that your data be pulled out of uh, companies. That's a provision sure. in GDPR. Yeah. Um, I went through it. I am not a European citizen. And I thought, oh, okay, let's let's see. It, it scans through all – you put in your email and it just scans through it can find where yeah. you might have signed up for accounts. And it generates this auto form where it says – under Article 17, blah, 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 please remove uh, my data. And it went out to all of these things that I had signed up for over the years. And over the course of like a week or two, I got all of these notices back that's like, okay, yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. We, we will take your data out of the system, like whatever. And this is for just global stuff overall. Again, I'm not covered under GDPR whatsoever. So these companies, and these, I'm not talking that I'm dealing with these like large companies. Like these are startup companies, like mid-sized companies, um, or even some smaller startups. But they do no uh, due diligence to figure out if if my request even is covered under GDPR. Like they're just doing it. If you get a request to pull data out of a site. Companies are just doing it. Like you can fake your way through the GDPR stuff, but that speaks to the money going into this one trust thing. Is these companies are so scared, scared that yeah. they have no idea how to handle it, and they need somebody to help them walk them through the process. And you know, we were talking before we started that the, the money in making compliance automated is really an interesting. Uh, thing to follow. It's a smaller niche, but if you can apply like the TurboTax model to just about yeah. any sort of mm -hmm. compliance right now, I, you have a great product because I use TurboTax to file my taxes. I could not fill out a 1040 by myself. Before I would even sign up to TurboTax, I'd be spending money to go to HR Block or, or yeah, uh, yeah. private CPA, whatever, to do it. I do it on TurboTax. It's clicks. Yeah, it's, easy. It, it's clicks. Just making sure that you've uploaded the right information and clicks. If you could do that for the government or, you know, any sort of financial stuff or anything like that, I think you've got a really, really great product. And clearly, uh, investors think that OneTrust has uh, figured out a way to do that with GDPR. Who knew we were going to have a compliance unicorn in cybersecurity? <laughs> Literally, a compliance unicorn. That's a, I forgot about the unicorn tag. Yeah. Compliance unicorn. Awesome. <laughs> okay, now to our interview with JP Keating um, with uh, Zimperium. Zimperium, really interesting company based out of Texas. They put out a report a couple weeks ago on security around mobile banking apps. Um, I personally stay away from mobile banking apps just because there's too many third parties that inject code into it, and uh, it's just me being paranoid. But um, they have a really interesting look that if you like mobile security and you like to use mobile banking apps that you should take a look at. We talked to JP about that and just all things mobile. Check it out. Okay, joining us today is JP Keating, VP of Product Strategy for Zimperium. Thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. So for those not familiar with your company, tell us what you focus on and what really uh, drives and how you fit into the cybersecurity space. That's perfect. Uh, uh, Zimperium is what's called in the Gartner parlance mobile threat defense. Okay. Think of it as next generation antivirus for mobile. So we right. detect the major mobile attacks. We've got various ways we can do it. Um, but we're one of the leaders, according to Gartner, we're one of the leaders worldwide. We have about 80 million endpoints around the world at this point. Um, and that's how we fit in. So is this something that is more enterprise focused or is it more consumer focused? Like if I wanted to put you on my phone, how would I go about doing that? No, it's perfect. Um, Zimperium ourselves, we focus on the enterprise completely. Matter of fact, okay. we're, we're known as being the most enterprise ready, capable. Federal governments use us. We've got a whole bunch of advantages that put us into there. Um, but we are very, very good at two things. And I can say it because I don't do either of them. Um, <laughs> okay. We're very, very good at detecting mobile threats. And we're very, very good at putting our stuff in other people's stuff. So of that 80 million endpoints, for instance, um, probably 80% of those are other people's brands. So we do go after the consumer market, but only through partners. So okay. For instance, um, SoftBank is a major investor of ours. And consumers okay. in Japan will be buying our product that way. Okay. Um, we have some huge advantages that we, that we have in terms of how we do our detection. Uh, that also includes the fact that we don't have to have any data ever leave the device at all. So, for instance, um, City of New York, Mayor de Blasio decided that it was the city's responsibility to not only protect uh, citizens on the street, but also in cyber. So he asked us to produce a, an app that anybody can download that's available for free to anybody that comes into New York City called NYC Secure. I did not know that you guys were behind that. We were. That is 100% our technology. And the reason that the mayor picked us was not only because he also uses on the enterprise side, was not only because of our, our capabilities to stop threats, but because we do all of our detection on device and so no data ever needs to leave the device, which is part of our main claim to fame. Okay. So uh, speaking of uh, the apps and things that sit upon the phone, uh, banking apps, you guys just released a report that looked at the security in the mobile banking apps. Let's talk about some of the big takeaways. Sure. Sounds great. Um, we have a, a, a technology that enables us to look at any mobile app and assess it and break it down into great level of detail um, and assess it on its security and its privacy risks. Um, and so what we did was we basically took the top banks in the, in the United States, we took their mobile apps on both iOS and Android and ran them through this engine to see how they scored. And the scoring goes for a lock solid, you don't have any risks at all, to 100, you got a lot of problems. Okay. Um, and the, the average iOS risk for instance, on the privacy side, was about a 50. Okay. Whereas Android was about a 70. Um, okay. Then on the security side, same sort of thing, where the Android apps were 50% higher in terms of risks. Now, what are the type of risks? Okay. These are risks where, for instance, and you know how it is with mobile apps. Mobile apps are basically Legos. The right. Mobile app developers need to solve a problem, they need to go do something, and what they do is they're under the gun, they never have enough time, they will go grab a library, grab an SDK, and throw it into the app. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident, those Legos are dangerous, right? Right. What were examples of dangerous? Sending traffic off unencrypted, sending traffic to a foreign country. Um, not great. <laughs> not great, not great at all. Uh, one of the major things we found is that literally nine out of 10 were susceptible to, across both iOS and Android, were susceptible to reverse engineering. Um, okay. Some of them didn't put in obfuscation. So if you took the code, you would, like I said, literally be able to reverse engineer these. Once you reverse engineer them, then you can figure out how to attack them. A huge percentage of them were using reusable code that wasn't updated, open source code. That wasn't updated, and since it wasn't updated, they're freely available vulnerabilities that the hackers could exploit. Uh, so it literally was this entire list of things, and especially in today's world where you got GDPR in in Europe, right? Uh, where you got breaches that are happening all the time. We got CCPA, the California uh, Privacy Act, out there. 
these, so many of these apps inadvertently were exposing data and users uh, to potential, uh, potential risk, I would like to believe without knowing it. Then there's one other one that fits into that whole category, which is a huge percentage of them, and I find this personally offensive. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, it's a mobile banking app. It's one of my most sensitive things. A huge percentage of them included code that that took uh, information and traffic and sent it to ad networks. So, uh, okay. So, so, oh, then yes. not great again. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so it's, that, it's those sorts of things we discovered. So those discoveries, uh, I'm interested in diving in a little bit deeper. The banks themselves aren't necessarily bringing in a tech team and have them develop their own apps, right? This is largely third party. So what more can the banks do or the financial companies do to make sure that when they reach out to these third parties, there's some, you know, secure coding going on or or we're not linking up to ad networks or we're not scraping data off uh, of of a phone no matter what the platform is. Right. No, that's a great question. Um, Part of my answer is going to be self-serving. And the self-serving part is the exact same engine that we have that we developed the report with is something that we're now providing to developers. Okay. Um, in this case, let's say the banks, right? Okay. Um, and the reason being is exactly what you said, which is spot on. Uh, they, we're now putting out a capability that will enable them at each build to assess whether my security or privacy risks went up or down and why, and be able to compare over time how am I progressing, and also be able to compare, to your point, which is spot on, two different dev shops. Okay. You know, which one of these guys is giving me the most problems, and I'm going to go have discussions with them, whether it's internal or external. Um, part of that, it's inherent in our software, but they could also do it individually. There's a bunch of different things like the OWASP Top 10, um, which is included in the report if you look okay. at it. And it says, here are the best practices, recommendations, whether they use somebody like us or do it manually or whatever the case may be. It just has to, it's the DevSecOps side of things. We need to actually start assessing these things early. In addition to that, there's capabilities that that we don't provide that other people do, you know, app shielding, obfuscation, you know, like like I said, we're right now we're providing this information and saying, here's some things. We're not the ones that actually fix it. If you're not, if you're doing things that are setting yourself up for reverse engineering, well, you should probably invest in somebody that provides obfuscation so you're not, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And I would imagine that the banks are probably receptive to I would imagine that the banks are probably receptive to this because it's only a matter of time before the legislation kicks in where they have to oversee this stuff, whether it is the California privacy law, the New York privacy law. I mean, there's already a law from the financial perspective in New York that they have to you know, watch over things with a rigor that you're not seeing on the federal level. So I imagine that you're hearing from the banks that this stuff is needed more and more. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we are. Um, and, and in addition to... Those are the regulatory pieces. Then there's the financial pieces. Some of the guys that actually have the most interest in what we're doing are the fraud teams, for okay. instance. Because, yeah, there's there's all sorts of protection for back-end APIs and all the rest of that stuff to, to say, hey, is somebody trying to swizzle and trying to come in and, and steal? Our other in-app protection um, actually enables them to protect in real time against uh, these attacks. But... Still, if somebody loses their credentials because of the app filtering it off to the side, nobody cares if it was malicious. It still happened. Right. Um, so the, the, the fraud teams, the, the privacy teams, uh, and like I said, for sure, the regulatory teams um, are very interested in this. So just talking about mobile across the board, are we seeing more mobile attacks or is it just that we're getting better from a visibility perspective and tracking the attacks down? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, we are seeing more. We are seeing more, meaning Zimperium. Okay. Um, the, we're, we're seeing more uh, an escalation for sure. The market itself is seeing more for exactly the reason of what you're saying, which is they're finally instrumenting. They're finally putting things out there. Um, you know, even even with the success we've had and the number of endpoints we've had and everything, if you think about 
you know, closing in on 100 million endpoints, that's a fraction of the mobile devices and a fraction of, of the transactions and stuff that are, that are out there. And we're a market leader. Okay. Um, so, so we've been seeing this for quite some time. So we've had visibility to it. And I can tell you that the, that the speed is, in, is increasing rapidly. Okay. Um, and I think it might even increase again because of uh, something happened recently with the Supreme Court ruling against uh, Apple, saying okay. it, happened, Which, it happened a couple of weeks ago, and the Supreme Court ruled against Apple that, that consumers can sue Apple to allow them to get apps from third-party app stores. Now okay. Like, okay. How does that factor in? Well, here's how it factors in. Well, the third-party app stores are there's, much more dangerous from a cybersecurity perspective. Exactly. There's ten times more malware, literally ten x the malware on Android than there is on iOS. The vast majority of all that malware does not come from the Google Play uh, Play Store. Right. It comes from third-party app stores. So if now you open up third-party app stores on iOS, there's absolutely nothing architecturally advantage in iOS that will prevent the exact same amount of malware to show up on iOS. Um, so, so yeah, the threats are the, the threats are definitely occurring, and it's not just nation state stuff anymore. What else is it then when you're talking about just not nation state stuff? Like, just or have we reached a level where it's just boring crimeware that we're seeing? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's boring until it happens to you. <laughs> but yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. I guess boring is the wrong way to, no, 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 to no, say no, it. No, I think it's, I think it's great. Um, yes, exactly. For instance, um, last year, um, according to RSA and a whole bunch of other folks, 50% of the, of the uh, mobile banking transactions were on mobile. Okay. okay. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Over 70% of the online fraud was mobile. So it's a disproportionate number already okay. in terms of what's happening. Right. And it's just with the Supreme Court ruling, it's just going to be basically opening the floodgates. Exactly. And that's just the malware part. That doesn't account for fake Wi-Fi networks, device compromises, phishing. 90% of breaches start with a phishing attack. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of emails are read on mobile. Right. So so all No, the attack vector is there, clearly. Yes, yes exactly. So speaking of attack vectors, WhatsApp was recently in the news based off of, you know, not nation state attacks, but nation state level sophistication, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll say. Um, I would love to get your thoughts on what that portends for just overall uh, the mobile attack vector and what Zimperium thinks of that attack and how consumers can protect themselves when they're obviously using messaging probably more so than mobile banking apps. Right, right. No, it's a great question. Um, so I would, I would break it down uh, into a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that you're right, it was kind of nation-state level, nation-state related, only because it was allegedly tied to the NSO group right. out, out, of, out of Israel. Um, and, and, the fir and the exploit was originally detected. So you got the vulnerability, which is actually what was disclosed. There was a vulnerability that created a buffer overflow so people could artificially inject code and do whatever they wanted. Right. So that's the, the techie side of things. The exploit, the only known exploit, according to WhatsApp and company, was on a lawyer who happens to be in a lawsuit against NSO. Right. Okay. So that's why it kind of became really kind of fascinating. But basically what it did was it was a, in the voice over IP um, part of, of WhatsApp, you could do a buffer overflow, and when you did it, you'd ring the phone, and even if nobody ever answered, that just merely having the phone answer enabled you to insert the code right. okay. and, and do surveillance. Um, so, on the one hand, you're like, oh, well, this is, this is cool. This could be like, you know, Designated Survivor or some other TV show, <laughs> you know, which, by the way, has Pegasus in it now. This is the latest season, which I think was kind of funny. I didn't know that. I'll have to go back and check that yeah, out because yeah, we've done yeah. totally aside. <laughs> Listeners of the podcast know we recently did like a breakdown of this crypto movie that was like Kurt Russell and – uh, one of the Hemsworth brothers that got lampooned pretty hard because it really didn't have anything to do with tech. But I'm always interested in seeing this, the cybersecurity stuff that lines our pages in CyberScoop actually being in modern media. So I have to check that, and it, that out. It, it, but pretty, sorry, pretty, continue. Yes, yes. No, that was my bad. I was the one who took us off on the tangent. Um, but, you know, the, the, the point is um, 
that happened to be one that happened to be targeted, right? It happened to be targeted at somebody. Uh, it was taking advantage of a vulnerability. You could say poor coding, but it just happens, right? You know, but in the WhatsApp that enabled this thing to be able to occur, then you start the usual race condition of we need to go out and patch it, we need to do everything like that. But what it really says is, you know, in, in cybersecurity, there are certain laws that are time tested. We've been doing this for you know quite some time, right? One of those is persistence. The bad guys are bad dudes, but they're good at what they do. They've got a good business model and they will have a strong ROI that they've calculated, mm -hmm. right? If they make the investment to compromise the device, they're going to want to remain persistent as long as possible to maximize their return, right? right? In mobile, the only way to actually weaponize a device, the only way to actually to stay persistent and to be above and beyond the apps that are in individual containers on mobile is to compromise the device, okay? So that was a big elaborate thing that these guys did. Whoever these attackers were, allegedly NSO, mm -hmm. but you know, NSO backed, right. or provided, doesn't matter. The only way they can weaponize is to come down and compromise the device. So back to your question of how do people protect themselves? The one thing I will tell you is mobile, uh, getting a mobile antivirus solution that just deals with malware, you're wasting your time. Okay. They're, 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 it, it's, because all apps are in containers, all of our studies have shown that the, that the majority, like 98% of the malicious apps on mobile are designed for fraud, not for attacking somebody okay. like your readers, okay. right? If I'm attacking XYZ agency in the federal government, I'm targeting them. I'm not gonna drop in the apps in, an app in the app store and pray somebody downloads it. Right. I'm gonna set up a fake Wi-Fi network right across from their office. Their phones are gonna connect to me. I'm going to compromise their device. I now own them. So the WhatsApp thing brought a lot of visibility to the fact that that there there is this hole. The hole got patched. There will be another hole. Of course. Last year, iOS and Android patched 700 patches, 70% of which were considered critical. So there's a plenty of holes. So for us, when I look at it, I say, okay, there's going to be all these different ways in. You can come in with mobile apps. You can come in with a vulnerability. You can come in with phishing. You can come in with a network attack. It all comes down to the device. You need to detect whether a device gets compromised, elevation of privileges. That's, that's the end game. Okay. If you can protect that, if you can detect that, then you can solve a lot of the other issues. So with all of those holes that are present in mobile, what are you telling organizations when it comes to employees that constantly want to use their mobile devices to get work done? But obviously, you know, there's that threat there of just knowing that, you know, with BYOD, who knows what's on somebody's phone? Who's no, who knows what app store they've used to download whatever app? So what are you telling organizations about how to balance that? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so... There's, there's multiple ways of, of going after the BYOD issue. Um, but the first thing that I tell them is you need visibility at a minimum. Okay. If you think about no matter what you're doing from a security standpoint, first I need to know that the threat is there. Then I can decide what I'm going to do about it, right? If I'm on a managed device using an EMM or Samsung Knox or whatever the case may be, I can see that there's something there and I can take action against it. If I'm on an unmanaged device, like in a BYOD scenario, I minimally want to, to know what's there, right? Then I can decide what, if anything, I'm going to do. Um, you know, even, even if it's uh, as simple as, you know, email is terminated for the time being until we call the guy and say, hey, look, there's something on there. Okay. But you do start getting into the you know, the privacy concerns and things on those lines. What have, we've also seen a lot of uh, agencies and companies do. I mentioned that we're very good at doing this detection. You can roll our solution out two ways. One that protects the device 100% of the time, which is the stuff that you use on managed devices. And, and then there's an SDK that you can drop into any mobile app, like I mentioned in the banking. Okay. Bank, right? A lot of uh, customers are actually developing internal apps for for things that the BYOD folks will access, so they don't even waste their time controlling the the device itself. Okay, they'll say if you're going to log into this HR app, 
we're going to make sure that there's no malware running on your device. Your device hasn't been compromised before we provide you your social security number. So that's another approach. Okay. So segmentation is just the way to combat that. Yeah. Moving forward. Great. Okay. Uh, JT, every Securiosity interview ends with a completely random question. The question for you is, if by some stroke of magic you were transported to the year 2119, what would be the first thing you would want to know? How many championships did the 49ers win? <laughs> you know, it's fantastic <laughs> that you said that because that was my first thought when I came up with this question, except not the 49ers. It, for me, it would be uh, the Philadelphia 76ers. Like, that would... That, it's probably it, going to be about the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah huh, hey, hey, if you're rooting for the Niners, hey, well, we can dream big. Exactly. Right? Uh, trust the process. So, uh, JT, uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, thanks again to JP. And hey, we will be back next week. As always, stay curious. <laughs>